This is an ABC podcast. I can't think of anything much scarier than being locked in a submersible and dropped a few thousand metres in the ocean. But if you're a marine archaeologist, that's kind of your dream job, especially if the submersible's being operated by James Cameron's crew and you're off to explore the Titanic. Emily Jadiff heads up Ocean Science and Technology at the National Maritime Museum in Sydney, and you couldn't wipe the smile off her face when she made that trip to the Titanic four times. She told us about her life aquatic at Occam's Razor Live at Vivid last year. Hello, everyone. I'm going to talk to you about shipwrecks and technology in shipwrecks. So I'm going to start back in, in 1985 when Robert Ballard, the oceanographer, led a team to discover the site of Titanic in the middle of the North Atlantic Ocean. The images that they brought back were breathtaking. And like Neil Armstrong's footprint on the alien landscape of the moon, this early imagery of a shipwreck at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean was a glimpse of a uniquely human object inside a world it wasn't designed to inhabit. Titanic didn't belong there. At the heart of it, ships are designed to float. But through quirks of fate, poor planning and engineering, the bottom of the ocean is where it ended up. Titanic is unarguably the most famous shipwreck in the world. It has been featured in film, like A Night to Remember or Titanic, Documentaries, lots of them, and a number of expeditions to the site, some with research plan and other with more dubious motives. As a maritime archaeologist, I have been to the site four times. Unlike all shipwrecks, it's a microcosm of history. It's tragically encapsulated. Shipwrecks have meaning as windows to the past. Archaeological information recovered from shipwrecks can show a particular moment in time. In certain instances, they can also provide lessons for our future. So, for example, one of our current research projects is on fair staining and coral death associated with historic iron shipwrecks that are on reefs. This may inform my understanding of how long it takes reefs to bounce back after situations like this. As well as the wonder of just finding the site of Titanic, the truly groundbreaking aspect of the discovery was the application of new technologies in archaeology. Submersibles and other imaging technologies employed during the expedition were usually reserved for oceanographic research, or real science. <laughs> Twenty years later, I remember attending the Archaeological Institute of America conference in 2004 and seeing Ballard speak. He said archaeologists would continue to struggle getting funding unless they started seeing their work as science and getting science grants. Most of the audience laughed. We knew what he did not. In the early 2000s, archaeology wasn't really considered a science. A few people were out there doing interesting crossover work, notably the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution's Deepwater Archaeology Program. These groups used imagery collected via underwater cameras and autonomous underwater vehicles, or AUVs, to piece together pictures of sites located at up to 6,000 meters deep. But by contrast, most maritime archaeologists didn't have access to this kind of kit. We were still drawing maps by hand, with measurements taken with tape measures. <laughs> and for many of us, borrowing a half-broken magnetometer for survey work conducted from a leaky dinghy was the closest we got to technology. But in the years between then and now, a few groups have taken up the mantle. But still, most of the truly deep-water work was conducted by documentary filmmaker-explorers like James Cameron or Ballard, again, who had private, 
production or institutional pockets deep enough to fund the ship time and equipment necessary for investigation of shipwrecks at depth. As usually, it costs a lot to get out there, and these types of expeditions come with a documentary component. That's the best way to justify spending the money, is to share it with the public. In 2005, I was lucky enough to be a part of one of these expeditions and experience the whole kit and caboodle firsthand. And then I was a graduate student in maritime archaeology. I had a background in collections management, and probably more to the point, a big smile and a bucket load of enthusiasm. <laughs> Titled Last Mysteries of the Titanic, the project had multiple aims. One, to use state-of-the-art micro ROVs, that's mini ones, to image selected areas deep within the surviving bow section of Titanic. They were micro so that they could fit through the windows. And two, to send the first live video feed from the bottom of the ocean to television screens worldwide. As the project was led by noted Oscar-winning director James Cameron, you can bet your last dollar that we achieved both. Not until the last minute, though. <laughs> to access the site, we used two Mir submersibles. Built in 1980s, the Mirs are owned by the Shearshop Institute of Oceanology and housed on the Russian research vessel MV Academic Mischislav Keldish. In order to conduct our work, cameras, lighting arrays, hydraulic arms, and ROVs were strapped, cabled, and caged to the exterior of the subs. Deployed from the ship by a crane, the mirrors slowly descend to 3,800 meters, and you spend a couple hours on site before beginning ascent. To work at extreme depth, you must be able to accomplish your goals in as short as time as possible. This is a reminder that we do not belong there yet. Today, the playing field has changed. While there continue to be excellent expeditions that open up the deep ocean for public consumption, archaeologists no longer rely on these types of projects to make deep water research possible. And given strides in ROV and AUV, or autonomous underwater vehicle technologies, we rarely have to visit the sites ourselves, which takes some of the fun out of it. One of the reasons for these strides is the constant human consumption of natural oil and gas. Deep water platforms within legislated waters require survey. And if you find a shipwreck, it's not great optics to plow through it. In 2009, an area of exploration was opened up in the Gulf of Mexico, which meant funding and toys for archaeologists to conduct investigations and public outreach on located sites, which in turn meant presentation at conferences and more chatter within the community about what is possible at depth. With an estimated 4,000 shipwrecks in the Gulf of Mexico alone, this is hopefully a project that will keep on giving. The Black Sea is also a much-hyped area for deep-water archaeological research, as it is a contained sea. It has no external influence from currents. Below 500 meters, the Black Sea has zero dissolved oxygen. This means it's an anoxic environment, and therefore absolutely perfect conditions for the preservation of organic materials. Just last year, the Black Sea Maritime Archaeology Project at University of Southampton used AUV-based photogrammetry to image sites at depth. Including the world's oldest known shipwreck, a Greek trading vessel dated to 400 BC. Look it up; it's amazing. It's ancient, and it looks a little bit like your uncle's fishing trawler. <laughs> in 2019, in Australia, we now have affordable remotely operated vehicles available for purchase. You can get one for about $4,000, so that's sort of affordable for an ROV. At the Australian National Maritime Museum, we have four small observation class ROVs. In our education department, and AUVs are trolling the ocean worldwide, spitting out data sets on everything from acoustic imaging to a variety of additional sensing capabilities. 
The CSIRO undertakes mapping exercises across Australia's exclusive economic zone every year. All these data are publicly accessible and have been used by maritime archaeologists and enthusiasts to locate shipwrecks. Just a few months ago, I was the chief scientist on board the CSIRO Marine National Facility's RV Investigator on a voyage dedicated to maritime heritage surveys. That girl who attended the Ballard Talk in 2004 squealed with delight over maritime archaeology's recognition as sciency enough to be granted space on board the national research vessel. Utilizing the vessel's complex suite of imaging platforms, we were able to locate the shipwreck site of the SS Iron Crown. This was a merchant navy vessel torpedoed in Victorian waters in 1942 by a Japanese submarine. There were 38 of 43 lives lost, and it is now located in 670 meters of water. Images captured by the drop camera were manipulated by Curtin University's Hub for Immersive Visualization and E-Research, or HIVE, to create accurate 3D photogrammetric images of selected areas of the site. But research is never solitary. And one of the greatest outcomes of the discovery of this site was the connection forged with descendants, and that this project brought some measure of closure to the families of those who were lost aboard Iron Crown. And we are having a uh, memorial service in September, which will be wonderful. So I suppose that's where we are now. AUVs and ROVs are out there and capable of gathering imagery for us that is almost as good as seeing it with your own eyes, and sometimes even better. Software exists that can be used to create incredibly accurate 3D models almost as good as diving the site yourself. If you're feeling really fancy, you can even 3D print it. These advances have enabled greater access to deep water cultural heritage sites, which in turn contributes to the growth of the discipline as a whole. Finding shipwrecks can answer questions about historic commerce, migration routes, cargoes, navigation, shipboard assemblages, give closure to descendants, open up lines of inquiry about symbiotic biorelationships between shipwrecks and the life forms that inhabit them, site formation processes, long-term preservation and management, and the most common question of all, why the darn thing sank in the first place. <laughs> Thank you. What a great story. And with all the risks associated with offshore drilling, I'm glad it's giving something back in terms of understanding our history. Emily is Senior Curator of Ocean Science and Technology at the Australian National Maritime Museum. Next week, something completely different. We'll hear about the origins of assisted reproductive technology and what the Pope had to do with it. I'm Bernie Hobbs. Catch you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.